Hey everyone, this is Jeff Fry, Research Director and Course Instructor here at Elite HRV. So many of us struggle with meditation. We know we should do it, but when we do, we wonder, is this even working? Or we question, am I doing this right? At Elite HRV, we take a data-driven approach to meditation by measuring our mindfulness using HRV biofeedback. A practice proven to improve HRV, mood, sleep quality, athletic recovery, and blood pressure, as well as reduce stress and anxiety levels. Just as we build muscular strength in the gym by lifting weights, we can strengthen and balance our autonomic nervous system through HRV biofeedback training. If you're interested in learning more, I invite you to check out our course entitled Biofeedback Training for HRV Optimization by going to EliteHRV.com forward slash HRV Biofeedback. Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Welcome back to the Elite HRV Podcast. This is your usual host, Jason Moore. And today uh, we have a special episode. We've got a really amazing guest, which I'm about to introduce, but we also have a co-host today. So Jeff Fry, the research director here at Elite HRV, and someone who you might have seen in some of our recent YouTube and other content material and courses uh, about biofeedback as well, uh, is joining me as co-host. Jeff, Welcome. Hi, welcome. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Awesome. And I was just before we were kind of hitting record saying how much better this podcast is going to be now that Jeff's here um, because he just brings a really big brain and a great sense of humor and perspective. So I'm excited to have you with me, Jeff. Oh, no, we need to lower expectations, Jason. Lower. (laughs) Well, let's not go too far on that because let's go ahead and welcome uh, Ina Hazan. And Dr. Ina Hazan, you you told me to say Ina, but welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jason and Jeff. And Ina, we've done a separate recording that includes your extensive bio, but, you know, a couple of the highlights, of course, uh, being a faculty member at Harvard Medical School, having that active uh, practice where you're applying, you know, clinical psychology and practice, and then being a, a pioneer in mindfulness-based biofeedback, specifically having experience with HRV and some other markers uh, for feedback, um, you know, I'm excited to dig into this with you because, in some senses, your work has paved the way for our work uh, in some regards. So, thank you for joining us. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Awesome. So. Um, you know, one of the things I think is a good starting point um, is that whole pioneer of mindfulness-based biofeedback element. Um, we've talked about mindfulness on this show before, and we've talked about biofeedback on this show before. And this takes those two concepts and combines them, I think, in a unique way that people might not have heard about before. So what interested you or what kind of got you into this mindfulness-based biofeedback, and what is that? Um, 
certainly very happy to talk about that. Um, I would say uh, when I figured out that mindfulness and biofeedback go together, it was transformational both uh, you know, for me personally um, and professionally um, as a clinician and researcher. Um, uh, I initially uh, was trained in uh, biofeedback uh, in graduate school, and I loved it. Uh, it worked really well for you know so, so many of my clients who were struggling with you know things like you know, uh, headaches and chronic pain and anxiety and all sorts of you know physiological uh, issues like that. Um, but you know, in biofeedback training, even though uh, everybody was benefiting and don't doing really well, there would be a point where we, we would get stuck. Um, and, you know, people would uh, try really hard to make some changes and those changes would uh, sometimes not be happening or even more often they would be going in the opposite direction, which would be you know, really frustrating for the client, you know, really uh, frustrating, you know, for me, creating all sorts of, you know, doubts. Oh, my God, what am I doing wrong? You know, am I, you know, am I even supposed to be here? How am I supposed to help, you know, to help people? Um, and then um, I was, uh, you know, I introduced to uh, mindfulness and the Combining the two together really changed everything. Uh, with mindfulness, the idea is to uh, learn to uh, allow the present moment to be as it is without uh, attempting to change it, uh, without judging it, without interpreting it, but rather, you know, letting it be as it is so that you can then make a choice for how to respond to this present moment. Uh, and being able to bring that perspective into biofeedback uh, training really changed everything. Now, instead of uh, uh, fighting with your breath and uh, it, or fighting with your heart rate to get them to do what you want them to do, uh, the idea is to take a step back. Uh, allow uh, your breath and your heart rate uh, and other areas of physiology to be uh, as they are. Um, and then, you know, once you are allowing the present moment to be, figure out how to introduce mindful change, a change that does not involve struggle, a change that does not involve hitting your head against the wall, that a change that actually happens. Uh, so th that that was uh, kind of the pivoting moment uh, for me. And uh, I've done mindfulness-based biofeedback ever since. That's great, Dr. Uh, Hazan. I'm going to jump in here with uh, a quick question about that. In your book, um, you give this great analogy of the strings of a lute. I wonder if you could uh, relate that for our audience. Um, absolutely. Um, at first glance, uh, if you th if you think about what mindfulness is, which is you know allowing things to be, um, and what biofeedback is, which is um, you know finding ways to produce change, uh, they seem to be on the opposite ends of the spectrum. They seem to be like they're incompatible. Uh, but in reality, they're a perfect complement uh, for one another. And uh, the ancient Buddhist story of the uh, parable of the lute uh, or the story of the middle way um, is a really nice way to illustrate this. So the story goes like this. Uh, in ancient India, India, there was a son um, of a... Um, Rich business, businessman, his name was Sona, and Sona decided that you know he would like to uh, become enlightened, and he um, gave up his you know, earthly uh, possessions, and he went off in search of enlightenment, and he meditated, and he meditated, and he tried really hard, um, and he just couldn't get there. Uh, so he went in search of the Buddha, and when he found the Buddha, he asked him, "That you know, help me. You know, I'm trying so hard here, um, and I'm." think I'm doing all the right things, but this is, you know, I'm just not getting there. Um, so the Buddha, knowing that Sona is actually a skilled a lute player, asked him, so Sona, tell me, uh, when you have your lute and its, uh, its strings are very loose, um, can you uh, play the lute well? Does it sound good? No, 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 it doesn't. 
All right, so then, you know, what if you have your lute and its strings are tuned very, very tightly? Does it sound good then? No, it really doesn't, and I can't play it very well. So what if you tune the strings of your lute just right? Not too tight, not too loose. What happens then? Well, then I can play it really well. It sounds, it sounds just right and produces exactly the kind of music I'm hoping for. And that, Sona, is the middle way. Uh, finding the way between allowing things to be and goal-directed action and applying both um, in appropriate ways at the same time. And that is exactly what mindfulness and biofeedback do. Uh, allowing things to be is mindfulness and goal-directed action is biofeedback. And when you bring them together, um, you are able to achieve uh, a non-struggling uh, path towards the kind of change that you'd like to create. Yeah, that's great. I think there are so many areas of life that, you know, we will like go towards one extreme thinking that the solution could be found there. And then we, you know, as we grow, we, we, we learn to realize that the, the true answer is somewhere in the middle. That's that balance that you need to strike between two extremes. Um, and so I think it's such a great analogy uh, for this sort of stuff. Now our audience um, is, I think, a little bit more familiar with biofeedback. If I had to guess, we have a biofeedback feature in, uh, in our app. We have a course out there about it. So I wonder if we can um, focus a little bit on mindfulness here. You gave a definition earlier, which I think is great, but I was hoping that we could maybe share uh, maybe a simple example of mindfulness, maybe one that you use in the book. Um, and then perhaps you could give us some uh, evidence for mindfulness in the scientific literature. Um, absolutely. Um, ultimately, uh, mindfulness is really just being in the present moment. So you can do absolutely anything mindfully. Uh, one of the simplest uh, examples if, is if you, you know, just hold out your hand in, um, in front of you, just you know, let it uh, let it stay up, and then uh, bring your attention to the hand and wiggle your fingers, and just notice the movement of the fingers as they wiggle. Just noticing the sensation of the movement itself. And those brief uh, moments of attending to the sensation of the fingers moving is mindfulness, um, where you are in the present moment, allowing it to be just paying attention to how things are without attempting to change. Um, there are... Um, you know, of course, so many ways to uh, practice mindfulness from, you know, being mindful of your breathing, which is so incredibly important with heart variability, uh, biofeedback, uh, to, you know, drinking your morning cup of coffee mindfully. Um, it, it's uh, actually a really nice way to introduce uh, mindfulness practice uh, into your life is just doing things that you already do uh, mindfully without necessarily having to right away set aside time for formal meditation because can sometimes feel overwhelming and you know, our lives are so busy and even uh, you know setting aside you know a few minutes can seem like oh my god where are those few minutes going to come from um, so a really nice way to start maybe you know taking that cup of coffee and you know just paying attention to um, the way that the the cup looks to you just observing its uh, um, shape and the colors uh, um, and perhaps you know some imperfections in the ceramic um, and then noticing what the cup feels like in your hands, the temperature, um, the, the surface of the cup feels like to you, um, smelling the coffee, 
um, you know, maybe uh, kind of hearing the slush, slush of the coffee if you were to shake it around um, in the uh, in the mug, and the, and then finally tasting the coffee, and just really taking your time with it, um, disengaging from temptation to rush or take big, big gulps, just you know, one little sip. Um, at a time, allowing yourself to truly enjoy that one cup. And you might do this five or 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and, you know, one thing I'll say is most people, uh, even though this is probably their millionth, uh, you know, cups of co- a cup of coffee, will discover something new and interesting about that cup of coffee that they've never noticed before. Mm, that's powerful. And, you know, I can relate to that. I, uh, uh, I can even see in my HRV when I'm monitoring, when I drink tea, I'm more of a tea person than coffee personally, but hopefully that doesn't offend too many people out there. Um, you can do the same thing with tea with Gita. Just <laughs> as much success and enjoyment. The, uh, you know, we were making some, uh, uh, sharing some experiences about children before we hit record as well. And, you know, one of the things I have a year and a half year old daughter that, um, it's you basically can see that she's mindful a hundred percent of the time, essentially. And she'll notice if you just move something, you know, an inch on the table, the next time she walks by, she'll glance at it and you can just see in her eyes that she knows that it moved from the last time she saw it. Whereas as adults, we've learned to kind of create patterns in our mind and and just like group things more efficiently so that we can ignore a bunch of noise in the world um, and pay attention to things that are kind of more, you know, or at least that we perceive to be more important, like our social media notifications, of course. But um, the, you know, is there a case for um, doing things mindlessly? Um one example I'm hoping that you'll say there's a case for is doing dishes, but um, <laughs> I'd just like to kind of throw a little curveball out there and and ask, you know, are you saying that we should do everything mindfully 100% of the time or are there cases for um, not doing that? Oh, that's an excellent question with not an easy um, answer to it. Um, I will say that it is probably not possible for us to be mindful uh, 100% of the time Um, and probably not necessary as well. Uh, You know, research actually shows that uh, our minds wander uh, almost 50% of the time. I think it's something like 47.6% of the time. Our minds are not uh, on our present experience. But what's interesting uh, is that there is also a very strong correlation between mind wandering uh, and uh, feelings of unhappiness. So, mm. you know, if, 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 you know, if you are the person that does not enjoy doing dishes uh, and you do those dishes while, you know, dreaming about a Caribbean vacation, <laughs> you might actually be, you know, ultimately, you know, less happy than if you uh, brought your attention to the dishes and wash the dishes mindfully. Uh, you know, even though you may not be loving the, you know, the idea or the experience of washing dishes, you might be better off washing the dishes mindfully than you are about, you know, thinking about something that you would really enjoy uh, doing instead. So that's sort of a funny, you know, funny thing about about our minds. On the one hand, it is impossible to keep them still, uh, and you know, there's an expression, you know, monkey mind. You know, our mind is constantly jumping from thing, you know, from thought to thought to thought, the way monkey that you know jumps from tree to tree to tree. Um, and it is impossible to be mindful um, all the time. Uh, but when we do have these little opportunities for mindfulness, like when we're you know, washing dishes or drinking our cup of coffee or taking a shower or playing with our kids, 
um, I would say, you know, take that opportunity and I think you will be better off for it. Thank you. That makes sense. And, you know, before we jump into the research, I think Jeff mentioned uh, some research around mindfulness, but yeah, there's, I, I have to say having a, a child does really increase your mindfulness by necessity, at least I think mm-hmm. so. And um, it's uh, led me to do some funny things in my life, like just um, turning off the light or walking across the room with the lights off instead of turning the light on. Um mm-hmm. It's such an easy thing to do, obviously, and meaningless, really, um, in the grand scheme. But uh, it really forces you to become hyper aware <laughs> of what you're doing and what's in the room with you. And like mm-hmm. this pattern that you do a hundred times a day um, becomes just, you know, acutely uh, front of mind. But uh, it's kind of a fun little exercise, I think. Absolutely, yes. And you're sneaking out of a child's room quietly without waking them up requires, certainly requires a lot of mindfulness and a very different sensory perception, right, from what we're used to. And so, what uh, you know, uh, Jeff, you mentioned research, um, and I know that uh, Jeff also spends a lot of time in the research. He's looked at a lot of it as well. But um, when you're talking about mindfulness, you know, how do you, how is mindfulness studied or what have you seen in the research that kind of... Uh, you know, takes this uh, different approach or view other than kind of the anecdotal view? Um, So the research in mindfulness is really quite uh, strong. Uh, uh, In the last, you know, three to four decades, you know, there is, you know, study after study um, coming out about the power of mindfulness in uh, improving our health, uh, our uh, performance, our well-being, you know, very importantly, just our ability to enjoy life. Um, and uh, some of the most robust findings, uh, right? I think this is important to pay attention uh, to. Pay attention to. There are, you know, you can probably find a research study on pretty much anything um, these days. <laughs> but you know, one study does not mean that this is it. This is the answer, right? Um, and it's certainly the case. You know, uh, it's the case with feedback, and it's the case with mindfulness. It's the case with anything. We do need to look at the research. Um, it, critically, um, and you know, be able to tell. Um, where is the research really robust? Um, and, you know, where do we need uh, to have, you know, more research before we can make uh, strong conclusions? So when it comes to uh, mindfulness, there are several areas where research is uh, uh, very uh, robust that, you know, mindfulness uh, uh, changes the structure um, of the brain. There have been quite a few uh, uh, imaging studies that show uh changes to structure and function of the brain uh, in very positive ways. Um, And as far as uh, improving uh, uh, daily functioning, uh, anxiety, depression, um, and uh, pain are the three main areas where uh, research is uh, uh, robust and strong, showing uh, uh, at least medium effect sizes, meaning that the change that mindfulness practice produces is, is is noticeable. It's not just some, you know, little change that may be statistically significant, but does not mean a whole lot practically. Uh, but in, in these areas, people do actually get, uh, you know, get to live better lives. Yeah. And what was so fascinating, Dr. Sun, in reading your book to me was um, some of this evidence for uh, changes in the brain that occur as a result of doing mindfulness and mindfulness meditation specifically. It seems like uh, some areas of the brain will actually grow, some will will, will diminish, and then um, we're able to see different, 
you know, activity uh, within certain parts of the brain known for doing, you know, certain things. Um, I wonder if you could speak a, a little bit to that, um, just because I know that that will resonate with our audience so much. Um, absolutely. Um, so there are uh, several um, areas of the brain that actually grow in size, right? So uh, uh, the so-called gray matter um, off the brain, which is uh, the uh, the number of uh, neurons uh, in each of those brain structures actually increases. Uh, so, for example, the um, hippocampus, which is this uh, part of the brain that's responsible for uh, learning and memory, uh, actually uh, uh, becomes bigger, right? So uh, you can kind of infer from that that our ability to learn new things and acquire new skills uh, gets better. Um, also, uh, the uh, part of the brain uh, called the insula, which is responsible for uh, a number of things, including uh, our proprioception, so our perception of, of ourselves, you know, our physical perception of self, um, as well as ability to experience empathy and take another person's perspective. Uh, so the insula becomes uh, bigger and more active as well, right? So think about the implications of this, uh, um, you know, for our relationships, right? You know, we're uh, actually able to um, understand other people's perspective uh, better. We are able to be more empathetic. Uh, we're able to um, form stronger connections with other people um, when we take uh, some time to meditate for ourselves, right? So it's not just a, uh, a practice we do for us, you know, we do this uh, in order to uh, improve our relationship with uh, people around us. Um, you know, another uh, part of the brain that becomes, you know, more active is your uh, prefrontal cortex. And that's the part of the brain that's incredibly important for most things you do on a daily basis, because it's the part that's responsible for emotion regulation, decision making, problem solving. Um, it, it's the part that kind of governs, you know, either your ability to shift from task to task, um, and make decisions, uh, you know, uh, quickly and appropriately, right? So the part of the brain becomes better able to do that and is very relevant for optimizing uh, your daily performance and daily functioning. Um, and then another very interesting part uh, is that the fight or flight um, center of the brain uh, called the amygdala, which is the, the part of the brain that's responsible for that automatic, you know, oh no, stop it, get me out of here, you know, kind of that, you know, that response that sometimes feels to us like a freak out, a response that sometimes feels like it's out of control. Um, with uh, meditation practice, that part of the brain actually becomes smaller and less active. Now, it doesn't go away, right? And it doesn't stop functioning because we actually do need the amygdala. We do need it uh, to warn us of upcoming danger and be able to you know, get, get ourselves to safety. Um, but uh, that part of the brain um, is be becomes less susceptible to unnecessary um, activation, kind of those unnecessary freakouts that can um, get in the way. Um, the amygdala, as many parts of your brain, is actually split into the, you know, the right and the left, right, where, you know, um, one part is responsible for that immediate uh, automatic, right, I'm going to get me out of here kind of response, and the other part is responsible for a more measured response to stress. Uh, and guess what? With meditation practice, it's only that immediate freak out part of your amygdala that actually decreases, and the one that's responsible for a measured response to stress stays the same. Um, so it's really, you know, the, the effects are pretty um, remarkable um, and quite uh, robust in research. Yeah, no, I mean, it certainly um, sounds that way. Um, I, as an avid listener to the Elite HRV podcast, I know that one of Jason's favorite words is the term powerful, and that one just keeps on coming to mind uh, as I'm listening to you talk through, 
you know, actual physiological changes in the brain as a result of doing what seem to be just very simple things uh, sometimes, uh, just a, a change of perspective. And I think, you know, anytime you can get like a big result or, um, you know, something can physiologically change from doing something simple, I think that is kind of the def definition of powerful. I wonder um, if we could switch gears a little bit now. I'd love to kind of unpack a little bit uh, about, uh, uh, you know, your clinical practice and what um, patients might see, um, like, when they, they come in to, uh, for for uh, for treatment, uh, can you maybe walk us through what a patient of yours might expect uh, when coming into treatment for the for the first time? Um, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of people um, come in with the idea that they are looking uh, for uh, biofeedback um, as at least as part of their treatment. Um, and, you know, people might be looking for help with anxiety or chronic pain or headaches or high blood pressure or, you know, uh, some sort of muscle-related uh, uh, pain, depression, or trauma symptoms. So there's a whole number of conditions where we know biofeedback is uh, uh, particularly effective, and people, you know, more and more are seeking out biofeedback as a way to help them cope uh, and help them improve their lives, um, as well as, you know, people coming in uh, wanting to just improve their performance, you know, uh, scientists, athletes, lawyers, um, you know, uh, musical performers, uh, managers, you know, uh, anybody who... Uh, typically performs at a high level um, and wants to be able to do that you know, even better. Uh, and anybody who wants to learn how to um, help their mind and body work with them as opposed to against them in stressful situations. Um, so the first thing we do is, you know, talk about, well, what's going on and kind of what's the context of uh, um, you know, you're coming in, uh, you know, to, to see me, you know, what do you need? Um, and then the second session uh, is a biofeedback assessment session where we actually, you know, figure, you know, figure out which areas of uh, uh, the person's physiology need to be uh, trained and how. Um, so the first session might be a uh, stress uh, um, assessment, which, you know, sounds stressful, but it's actually not nearly as bad as it sounds. Uh, the idea is we record uh, physiological uh, readings like uh, heart rate, heart variability, breathing, muscle, muscle tension, etc. Um, and then we expose people to uh, three different mild stressors, you know, they're, you know, nothing, nothing extreme, it's three or four stressors um, that tell us, you know, how does uh, this person's body um, uh, first function at baseline and what happens uh, during these stressful periods and then what happens during recovery periods. Um, and because you know, those are uh, reflect, uh, reflective of uh, our daily kind of functioning. You know, there are times when we are kind of in neutral mode and there are times when we are in the uh, um, stress or challenge mode, and then there are times when we're recovering, and uh, we want to know how does the body, um, how is the body able to transition uh, between uh, each one of those modes and what happens in each of those times. Um, is there, are, is there a part of the autonomic nervous system that needs to be uh, trained in order to uh, function at its best in each one of those situations? Um, and then once we figure out, uh, you know, how does uh, you know, each person's uh, uh, nervous system need to be uh, trained for optimal uh, self-regulation, then we actually implement that training. So uh, uh, heart rate variability and uh, breathing training is one of the uh, most common modalities that I, that I use uh, with people um, because it's uh, probably one of the most uh, versatile. Uh, it's the one that's been, uh, um, you know, very well researched uh, to be uh, effective in um, 
improving symptoms of a number of uh, psychophysiological conditions, as well as very effective in improving people's performance. Um, so uh, when it comes to um, heart durability and breathing training, the first thing uh, we do is actually start with mindfulness, which seems a little bit uh, you know, counterintuitive because people are coming into for biofeedback. But what I want people to learn is how to allow their present experience to be without a struggle. So that when we do get uh, to biofeedback practice, um, they are um, you know, already going into it, uh, being able to make mindful changes, not getting stuck in unproductive efforts to control uh, or you know, fears of failure uh, or uh, attempts to uh, control something that is actually not under their control. Uh, so we start with a, a mindfulness uh, uh, practice, and then we move on to uh, determining someone's residence frequency breathing rate, which is you know fundamental to um, improving uh, and training someone's heart rate uh, variability. Right, it's that optimal breathing rate that will maximize you uh, the ability of your heart to increase to its highest point and decrease to its uh, lowest point. Kind of those. Uh, um, um, uh, optimal um, oscillations that really indicate that your body is regulating um, at its best. Um, and then, you know, we train um, the person's heart rate variability um, by breathing at residence frequency, uh, breathing rate, you know, helping people, um, you know, figure out uh, with the use of mindfulness, you know, how to achieve uh, that um, optimal training zone uh, by paying attention to internal cues uh, from their body um, and being able to use the uh, external cues uh, you know, from the uh, biofeedback uh, equipment displayed on the computer screen, combining the two together, uh, giving people all the tools they need in order to implement this practice into their daily lives and then being able to use this practice in a challenging yeah, that's that's so great. Um, it makes total sense to me now that, you know, um, I know more about biofeedback and, and learning more about mindfulness from your book. It seems like it really could be this missing link for folks. I wonder if you could um, just tell us a little bit more uh, like about one or maybe two of uh, your patient success stories that you've seen uh, in your practice and, and what, what has happened there in your book, you do such a great job of describing these case studies, usually at the beginning of your chapters. And I hope, I was wondering if you could maybe relate one or two of those for us here today. Um, absolutely. Well, um, you know, I can, um, um, tell you about, uh, one person who, um, you know, I'm going, I'm going to call him Frank. That is not his real name. Sure. Um, but you know, he, um, uh, came in uh, because he was, you know, he was experiencing um, anxiety uh, during uh, public speaking, and he felt like it was really holding back um, his career because, you know, he, uh, he uh, was offered opportunities where speaking would greatly improve, um, you know, his visibility and his ability to be a leader in his company. But the idea of uh, um, standing up and speaking in front of a group of people was completely terrifying, um, and it's something that he was, you know, avoiding at all costs. So, you know, as we uh, uh, talked about this initially. Um, you know, he described some you know uh, difficult experiences with public speaking uh, in uh, you know early on in school, where you know uh, uh, kids would make fun of him, and you know, the idea of standing up and speaking in front of somebody else just just the thought of it would immediately provoke this very intense um, physiological reaction, where he, he he described it as my brain would just shut off, and you know I'm not able to think straight. So even if I know you know exactly what I want to talk about, if I have my uh, speech really well researched and really well prepared, and you know I'm able to deliver it, you know, to the mirror, you know, uh, perfectly fine, you know, it, you know, and actually feel like I'm doing really well. But then when it comes to thinking about delivering that speech, 
in front of the people, forget it. You know, the brain shuts off, um, you know, weird sounds come out of my mouth, you know, my, my body goes into this uh, um, avalanche of uh, uh, intense, uh, unpleasant sensations, and I just can't do it. Um, so uh, as we um, did the biofeedback assessment, what we um, found is, you know, his body was actually functioning pretty well at baseline. Um, there was not a whole lot that we really needed, uh, you know, to improve. But when it comes to, you know, these uh, uh, times when he was exposed to stress, um, you know, I could see physiologically his body lost its ability to regulate itself. You know, his breathing um, would be um, often he was actually uh, decreasing the amount of oxygen that was uh, uh, coming to his brain um, and his heart rate variability uh, was really disrupted and it took a very long time for his heart rate variability to uh, recover, right? Indicating that his body was having trouble regulating itself long after, uh, you know, the stressor itself was over. And um, the same thing would happen if he was just thinking about potential stressors. His body would have trouble regulating itself. Um, oxygen to the brain would decrease. Um, and, you know, that, that would be responsible for that feeling of, you know, forget it, I can't function, I can't think straight. Um, so th those were the two um, areas where uh, we uh, where we focused. The first thing I did was, um, you know, teach him how to be mindful of his uh, breath um, in order to, you know, right away not get into that uh, struggle uh, that produces uh, that lack of oxygen, right? So, you know, very, very briefly, um, uh, I... What I'm talking about is a behavior called overbreathing. Uh, when you uh, breathe out uh, too much carbon dioxide, right? And this sounds counterintuitive. It sounds like, well, isn't that a good thing that we're getting rid of the carbon dioxide? Uh, but in fact, we need to hold on to a great majority of our carbon dioxide in order to allow for the oxygen that we do have to go to where it needs to go. Um, oftentimes, in really stressful situations, um, you know, when the body is going into that fight or flight response. Uh, our, you know, we try to perhaps breathe, you know, really deeply and take these big, deep breaths. Um, and as a result, end up breathing out, you know, way too much uh, carbon dioxide, lowering the level of carbon dioxide in the blood, um, which then, you know, through a series of physiological events that I'm not going to get into right now, uh, leads to not enough oxygen getting to the brain um, and muscles and other organs, right? So that's responsible, you know, oftentimes responsible for that feeling of, you know, my brain is just shutting down. I'm not able to think straight. Everything is fuzzy. You know, your brain is quite literally not getting enough oxygen. So it's impossible to function uh, in that state. Uh, so uh, the first thing, you know, we did there is uh, a practice mindful uh, breathing so that the idea of paying attention to his breath uh, did, you know, did not provoke this uh, uh, immediate overbreathing reaction. Um, you know, I taught him uh, what overbreathing felt like and then how to rebalance um, his breathing with uh, low and slow uh, breathing that allows uh, optimal uh, amounts of carbon dioxide to be retained and therefore optimal amounts of oxygen to go to where they need to go. And then we took that breathing uh, and incorporated into um, heart rate variability uh, biofeedback, um, which then enabled his autonomic nervous system to regulate itself in these uh, in these situations. You know, and heart rate variability training, it's uh, one of its most powerful aspects is that you do that training at neutral times. Uh, you don't you know, need to uh, practice this uh, in stressful situations all the time. And you start out with, you know, it's kind of like a workout, right? you know, you do your uh, breathing training, you know, say uh, 20 minutes a day, um, and your body learns 
uh, to regulate itself better. And for as long as you continue that regular practice, you're able to maintain uh, and continue improving your body's ability to self-regulate. So, you know, when uh, Frank, uh, you know, found himself facing some of those you know, challenging public speaking situations. His body was already uh, functioning, uh, functioning better, and uh, um, he didn't even—he ha didn't have to do a whole lot in order for his body to be um, to be able to regulate and provide just the right amount of activation that he needed uh, during um, his uh, during his speeches. Um, Little by little, you know, we started with, uh, you know, small kinds of challenges, you know, eventually uh, uh, increasing the amount of challenge where he was, you know, using his skills um, in more and more and more challenging situations until eventually he was able to uh, deliver uh, a speech in front of a lot of people and uh, feel uh, really good about it. And the interesting part is he didn't feel calm. He didn't feel relaxed because that we don't want that, right? You know, when somebody is about to give a speech, uh, we don't want them to be calm and relaxed because then, you know, their body is actually not producing enough activation. You're not actually able to um, give everything you need to to that performance. Um, so, you know, with, with mindfulness training, what he was able to do is allow his body to achieve that optimal level of activation that we were training with biofeedback. Right, and then uh, allow that level of activation to stay, um, uh, so that he could, you know, make the best use of that activation uh, um, that he needed to during his uh, speech, uh, and only once the speech is over, you know, be able to recover, um, be able to recover fully. Wow, there's so much in there, uh, Ina, and I really appreciate that story because, um, you know, you talk about things so naturally such as starting small and kind of building a practice that you can then increase the difficulty and almost almost kind of gamifying the progression so to speak um and in that sense you can even think about it as a fun like set of challenges ahead that ultimately lead to you know application in a real world stressful situation and the other side of it too is you know when we talk to uh, people on the athlete side of the equation, right? People uh, who are interested in measuring HRV to measure recovery and things like that, or try to prevent overtraining. You know, one thing that always comes up is, you know, oh, it's always better to relax or it's always better to, you know, calm the nervous system down or something. And then in day-to-day -day life, kind of since stress in many cases for people always, uh, not always, again, there's that word, but people tend to be a little bit more on the stressed side than not. The The temptation is to always say that less stress is better or that we shouldn't be amped or, or things like that. And I really appreciate your stance just being crystal clear there to say that if you're going to go on stage or you're going to do something that requires any degree of mental or physical performance, you don't want to be <laughs> like jello <laughs> you know you you, you want to be able to um, perform well you want to have the system primed for performance but not in such a way that you know on the physical movement side of the equation if you're too tense you know you can't perform the precise movements that you need to perform or if you're too mentally tense you may forget what you're going to say or you know uh, seize up from nervousness or something like that um, so I, I really appreciate you highlighting all of that. 
Um, absolutely. I think that is that is so incredibly important. You know, we have this uh, powerful, powerful tool of you know heart variability biofeedback that enables people to regulate their level of activation. Right? Um, uh, heart variability uh, training is not about learning to relax. And when we implement heart variability skills before a big performance, it is not in order to relax prior to a performance. You need uh, heart variability. Uh, biofeedback in order to allow your body to reach its optimal level of activation. Um, and you know what? Your body is built for it. You know, the idea that we should decrease our stress and, you know, not, you know, walk around amped up, um, it, it is true to the extent that, you know, we don't want to be stuck in overactivation, uh, but your body is very much built for being activated as long as you don't get stuck in it. Uh, and again, that is uh, what heart variability biofeedback enables you to do is activate to its optimal level and then be able to recover quickly and fully, uh, which is what will drive uh, uh, health uh, and performance, not reducing activation at all times, right? That will make for a pretty boring, meaningless life. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's the, you know, those systems are there for a reason, right? It's um, mm -hmm. the ability to uh, switch gears quickly and rest and recover when that's appropriate and then activate when that's appropriate. And in some cases, especially for like mentally challenging tasks, the combination seems to be very powerful. Um, and so is from a mechanics standpoint, if we talk about, you know, what type of physical exercises people are doing when they go through this, you know, I think you talk a lot about diaphragmatic breathing um, and, and maybe even other types of patterns. Uh, what physically is somebody doing when they're doing the HRV biofeedback with you? Um, so um, I uh, train them uh, in low and slow breathing, uh, which is a form of diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, but this low and slow breathing encourages uh, a normal size uh, inhalation. So we're not talking about a deep uh, breath that is, you know, uh, very often talked about in diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, and that has to do with um, minimizing the possibility of over-breathing. Uh, now, when we are at rest, which is what we are when we do heart variability biofeedback, uh, we don't need any extra oxygen. We have plenty of it, right? You know, at that point, you know, we are taking in about 21% oxygen. We are breathing out about, uh, you know, 16% oxygen. So we're only using about a quarter of the oxygen that we're taking in. So we have plenty. There is no need for a particularly deep breath. Uh, and uh, deep breaths that are uh, too quick on the exhalation actually produce this uh, uh, behavior of overbreathing that then um, uh, that then prevents oxygen from going to where it needs to go. Uh, so the idea with low and slow breathing uh, is to take in a normal size, uh, uh, comfortable uh, breath in, sort of you know through the nose as if you're smelling a flower, um, and then to breathe out fully and comfortably uh, as if you're blowing out a candle, perhaps through pursed lips. Um, and if we're going to do this uh, with heart rate variability uh, training, then uh, we will either determine someone's resonance frequency breathing rate, right? That's ideal. Um, and for most people, that breathing rate is going to fall somewhere between uh, four and a half and seven uh, breaths per minute. 
Uh, but if for some reason uh, determining someone's exact resonance frequency is not uh, not possible, um, then we can breathe at six breaths per minute, which is close enough for most people. Now, I'll say there is definite benefits to actually figuring out your resonance frequency breathing rate, uh, but uh, breathing at six breaths per minute is it certainly will give you a lot of benefit, and it is absolutely better than just doing slow breathing at you know at whatever rate. Um, so uh, to breathe at six breaths per minute using slow and slow breathing. Um, you would take in a normal size, um, comfortable, you know, breath in, allowing the breath to go all the way down uh, to the bottom of the lungs, right? That's the low part. And you're going to breathe in to the count of four, so about four seconds uh, for the inhalation. And then breathe out through pursed lips as if you're blowing out a candle until your lungs are comfortably empty to the count of six. Now, this uh, kind of breathing uh, is uh, much slower than what most of us are used to doing. Um, so I find that a lot of people have trouble slowing down their exhalation that much. Um, so uh, one of the uh, most helpful uh, skills to use here is slow down your exhalation at the very beginning. So if you're counting to six for the exhalation, if, uh, in, the, in the first two counts, that's where you want to slow down your exhalation because most people breathe out the most air at that point, and then they run out of breath and it doesn't last them the whole six seconds. Uh, but you know, do the best, do your best to slow down your exhalation right at the beginning, and then you will have uh, enough to last you uh, the whole six seconds and give yourself a little time to uh, adjust to that. You know, start with just uh, you know low and slow breathing without a particular count, just you know mindfully. Uh, breathing uh, low and slow, and then add uh, the count uh, into that so that you don't end up struggling. That, that uh, last tip is very valuable. I do know that when I first started practicing slowing my breath down, that it was if I was going for six second exhale, I would basically exhale for two seconds and then hold for four because I had already gotten rid of everything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and Ina, uh, Real quick question on that is the is there any goal that one should have in mind about fully emptying the lungs in that exhale, or is the goal just to continuously exhale at a comfortable pace for the full six seconds? Um, you do want to. Um, comfortably empty your lungs. So I want to be careful here because sometimes when um, they say you know. Uh, allow your lungs to empty, uh, people will end up going to, you know, blowing the you know, air out and really producing a lot of effort. Uh, and, you know, like making sure that every last drop of air is, you know, is out of their lungs, um, which is uh, not a very helpful thing to do. You know, just that effort in itself is not very pleasant and it can lead to other um, unpleasant consequences. Um, so what you want to do is, you know, yes, uh, allow your lungs to comfortably empty. Um, you don't want to be taking the next breath uh, when your lungs still have a fair bit of air left in them. If you try that, will actually feel quite uncomfortable. Um, the six seconds usually allows, you know, plenty of time for the lungs uh, to empty, you know, especially if you uh, kind of modulate your exhalation to distribute uh, your, your exhale, you know, pretty evenly throughout the six seconds. So yes, you are you are aiming for a comfortable um, empty lung feeling, uh, not an effortful, you know, I got to blow out every last bit. 
Perfect. Thank you. That that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, there's definite times when I've experimented with both, and I know that de- depending on what my goals are, it it feels a lot better to uh, use comfort or at least not overexertion as just kind of a, um, you know, just like a, uh, not a common sense, but just trying to feel out my own practice a little bit um, seems to be a helpful guide. Absolutely. And that mindful awareness of your of your own experience will really help you there. You know, mindfulness does um, give you a, a way of, you know, just an extra look uh, inside, right? You know, biofeedback gives you an excellent look at exactly what's going on on the inside, but then mindfulness gives you like an extra dimension to that that you can um, add together with, um, with biofeedback. Um, and when it comes to your breath, you know, if you are um, not focusing on, on taking a very big breath in, right, then that will also enable you to um, modulate your exhalation uh, without having to struggle to, you know, empty uh, your lungs, right? If you're taking in a, you know, just a sort of a normal uh, amount of air that your body needs and your body not, does know exactly what it needs, you just need to let it do its job, um, then your exhalation will feel a lot easier uh, as well because you're not, you know, tr- uh, trying to uh, breathe out more, a greater volume of air um, than you should. Mm. And so, you know, my natural inclination at this point is to actually go into the weeds and dig in on uh, carbon dioxide and oxygen and why that sounds so counterintuitive and things like that. But um, Jeff, do you have uh, anything to uh, save us from that rabbit hole from me? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, uh, so, Ina, I, I love your uh, description of this low and slow breathing. I feel like it really um, resonates with this general theme of the, the, our whole conversation here about balance, because I feel as if many people who haven't been introduced to deep breathing or have no interest in it or haven't done any of it themselves, they probably have a, a you know pretty shallow um breath in general. And so that uh, breath, um, generally speaking, should be deepened to a certain degree. However, uh, it's, uh, you know, with these people who probably aren't trained in breathing, it can be very easy, uh, like you've probably seen to overbreathe and to take too deep a breath like you've been speaking about. So I think that's really cogent um, information for folks listening to this podcast, that um, this is not about taking you know, any sort of extremes, we're not trying to take shallow breaths, but we're also not trying to take overly deep breaths, right? And we're trying to breathe low and slow. Um, and I think that's just such uh, Im- Im- important information. Um, Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, you know so important because you know very often when we ask people to slow down their breath, they naturally assume that that means they need to take a bigger breath in, that that they need to take a deeper uh, breath, or that they need more oxygen. Right, which you know the reality is no, not really. Um, you just need to you know if you. Uh, shift your breath lower to the belly that will naturally deepen your breath and it will you know uh, deepen your breath just enough uh there's no need to you know make an effort uh, to deepen your breath and your body will you know allow you to take in as much oxygen as it actually needs um uh, and uh op- optimize that the delivery of that oxygen right you know our uh, 
the tricky part with breathing is not so much getting enough oxygen for most of us, you know, if their lungs and the heart are um, healthy. Uh, it's not the getting enough oxygen, it's the releasing sufficient oxygen from the bloodstream. And this is where retaining CO2 comes in. Uh, and this is where you don't want to take too big a breath. Uh, and no, you don't want to take too shallow a breath uh, either. Um, and the, again, it's finding that you know middle way, you know where um, you're taking your breath that's you know normal and natural without being uh, too big, and then um, exhaling slowly and fully. Sure. I wonder if we can shift gears again then um, into talking a little bit more, going back to this this mindfulness concept, and um, maybe we can relate some practical ways in which people can implement uh, mindfulness into their day to day life. Um, we talked earlier about, um, uh, you know, washing dishes with sort of a mindful attitude, but I know in your book, you talk about so many other ways and that's sort of like the, the, the low hanging fruit in, in terms of, 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 you know, getting into mindfulness, uh, training, but I wonder if we could relate a few more of those and then maybe what the next step would be, uh, beyond, um, trying to be more mindful while we're washing dishes or something like that. Um, um, certainly. Um, so, you know, in those early stages of incorporating mindfulness into your everyday life, um, you know, again, uh, using uh, mindfulness as just part of what you're already doing can be a really um, helpful way to start. So perhaps taking a mindful shower, right? That's something that most of us do, you know, every day. Um, and the nice thing about that is there is there's nowhere else you need to be during that time. And there is nothing else you really need to be doing during that time. So it's much easier to allow yourself to just be mindful when you take that shower, um, starting with just, you know, observing um, what's around you, you know, whether it be, you know, the tiles of the shower or the way that the water drops in front of you or the you know, way that the shower doors are steaming up. Um, to then, um, you know, uh, hearing the sound uh, of the water as it hits or um, to uh, uh, perhaps, uh, you know, feeling uh, the sensation of water um, on your skin, you know, the temperature, you know, the texture of water, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, smelling the fragrance uh, of the soap. Um, you know, I don't typically recommend tasting the soap, but hey, you know, you could taste some of the water if you really wish, but the idea is to you know, use every one of your senses uh, here. Um, and that's a mindfulness practice that you can easily do um, every single day. Um, some other examples, you know, maybe say playing with your kids um you know um, as uh, uh, jason mentioned earlier you know kids are just so inherently mindful you know when um you know when you're playing with them they're right there with you you know they're not thinking about dinner and they're not thinking about their presentation the next day they're just you know they're uh, you know playing with you um and allowing yourself to be fully present uh, with uh, with them uh, can be really powerful both for you know for enhancing your connection with your child for you know feeling uh, you know, like a more competent, you know, present parent to just, you know, plain old enjoying your time, right? You know, if you're giving yourself permission to not think about the work that you're going to have to finish up, you know, after, if you give yourself permission to not think about, you know, the dinner that you're going to have to cook after, but just, you know, being there um, with your child, you're going to uh, enjoy it a whole lot more and you might be paying attention, you know, to, you know, the game itself or perhaps to how you, you know, you feel, you know, the emotional connection with your child and to feeling the physiological sensations that you experience. Um, and, and I really love that kind of, uh, you know, mindful parenting uh, uh, practice uh, for, for, a number of, for a number of reasons. Um, 
you can also um, just, uh, you know, spend a few minutes, you know, breathing mindfully, you know, if you um, find yourself, uh, um, you know, having, you know, maybe just a minute or two between tasks, um, take uh, a few uh, mindful breaths without uh, uh, any pressure to do um, anything else, just, you know, that low and slow uh, mindful breathing. That's, that's really great. You know, I appreciate those examples. And, you know, when, when you're getting into this with people, uh, maybe let's say they're new to it, or, you know, in your case, since you've kind of developed a reputation in a practice, people may already be a little bit pre-primed when they uh, come into your practice. But uh, what do newbies uh, kind of have reservations about when they get into this? Or what do you find are the sticking points for people who are new to it? Um. Sometimes, uh, you know, probably the, the most frequent uh, reservation people have uh, is that this is too hard. Um, you know, uh, mindfulness has become such a uh, um, household term these days that a lot of people have tried, you know, uh, to meditate in some way, shape or form. Um, and many people, um, you know, come in and say, you know what, I've tried it. It's too hard. Um, and then I ask them, well, what exactly does that mean? And most of the time people say, well, my mind wanders off. Um, and then, uh, you know, I can't keep my mind still. I can't empty my mind of thought. Uh, and the really good news that I have, you know, for my clients and for, you know, for our listeners now, you don't actually have to do any of that. Um, your mind will naturally wonder. Uh, and it is not a requirement to empty your mind of thought in order to be mindful. Um, the idea is to notice when your mind wanders off. So it's really not a matter of if. But it's a matter of when uh, noticing when your mind wanders off and then gently without judgment, bringing it back to whatever anchor you had, you know, for your attention. Um, and, you know, thoughts are going to be running through your mind all the time. That does not prevent you from being mindful. Uh, you know, if you, if, you, if you happen to run away with one of those thoughts uh, and get distracted again, you notice that, you know, you, you know where, where the mind is been bring yourself back to the present moment and to uh, the anchor that you've chosen for yourself. And that's it. Uh, with, you know, with practice, it does become easier. Your mind doesn't run off quite as much. And it's, you know, you notice that it's, it has run off earlier and so it's easier to bring it back. Uh, but uh, inevitably, you know, even with some of the most uh, well-practiced meditators, the mind does still um, run off some of the time. Um, so it, it is not at all, you know, preclusion to uh, to practice, um, and it does not mean that you are doing it wrong, right? It's really just a, a matter of giving yourself that, you know, permission for the mind to wander off and bring it back and wander off and bring it back, and that's it. Makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Ina, I, I, one um, just kind of thought I wanted to, to drift by you. So uh, in when you're doing HRV biofeedback in our app now, um, you can basically uh, do one of three things essentially, which is you can you can you know follow this uh, resonance breathing pattern or your personalized resonance uh, breathing pattern with but while monitoring your your HRV in real time or while monitoring your heart rate in real time or you can simply you know just follow the breath um, and then sort of wait for the end of the the session to occur and what I've what I've found and what many others have found is that um, not monitoring your HRV in real time can actually be helpful um, as it kind of takes your mind off of the results, right? It, it takes, it's, mm -hmm. it's in a way, it's sort of a more mindful way of going about it and either focusing on, you know, those heart rate oscillations or even just not focusing on any metric at all. And then being able to see the data from the session after it's done 
um, that that can uh, produce a lot of better results. Is that sort of what you've seen in your practice? And is that sort of what you're talking about to a certain degree about what, when you when you talk about mindfulness enhancing biofeedback? Yes, uh, absolutely. Um, there is uh, so much benefit to having that feedback. And especially, you know, uh, early on, you probably do want to see what happens to your heart durability as you breathe. Uh, but um, um, as you uh, said, Jeff, it, it can often produce this results-oriented approach. Um, so the breathing becomes about, well, is my heart durability increasing? Is it happening? Uh, as opposed to just being mindful of the process and the experience itself. Um, and when we're so fo focused on, is my heart durability increasing? Guess what? That's one of those times when it's actually likely to go down uh, because you're uh, not present in that moment and you're not actually paying attention to your breath so much. You, you know, your, your mind is, you know, half of it is thinking about, uh, am I doing this right? Uh, and ultimately, right. And that, and that will um, pr prevent your breathing from uh, being um, at its optimal. Um, so after um, after people gain that initial skill uh, of being able to breathe at, uh, you know, six breaths per minute or resonance frequency uh, and seeing that it does produce that desired result of increasing um, your heart durability uh, in the moment, um, then what I encourage people to do is move away from um, having that external uh, feedback. Uh, and to use internal feedback instead. Um, it might be initially sort of an uh, internal pacer, even a, uh, a way for you to know that, okay, yeah, I am in that optimal uh, training zone. Uh, so gradually moving away from external pacers. Um, and then eventually just being able to focus on the process of the breath itself to give you that feedback. Um, and knowing that you can go back to the app if suddenly, you know, you, you're you know, something really distracted you or you just can't find your place in that zone, uh, that app is there and the pacer is there. And you can always go back to it to re-guide your breath you know, back to that optimal training zone. Um, and then again, allow your uh, attention to just focus on the breath, the breath itself. Um, and you know, being able to have the recording, so monitoring the heart rate variability throughout practice, but not necessarily looking at it, uh, I think is uh, the optimal way to continue training once you acquire uh, the initial skill. Um, and this way you can track, um, you know, what, what happens in each session. Um, and this way you can you know, ultimately, you know, keep track of progress, um, but being able to do so mindfully uh, without producing that struggle of, am I doing this right? That's such a powerful tip. And I had a friend uh, recently say that a clock can be a self-awareness tool or a slave driver, depending on how you use it. And, and I think that's such a powerful thing to just say, you know, there are periods uh, when it's useful and periods when it's not. And knowing the difference can take a little practice, but um, it can be a very helpful tool for uh, bringing awareness to the right thing at the right time. So that's... I could not agree with that more. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ina. This is this hour has flown by, um, and I think there's a lot of information for people here, especially if they're newer to the subject. And, uh, you know, you, uh, like I said, talk so naturally about this. You've clearly thought a lot about it and spent a lot of time on it. So we really appreciate you 
you know, sharing all of that accumulated knowledge and experience with us. It's been really fascinating. <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for giving me this opportunity. I love uh, to talk about this and it's you know, very much a, a passion of mine. You know, biofeedback is such an incredibly powerful tool that improves people's lives and uh, in really very easy to acquire ways. Um, so, you know, the more I can, you know, talk about this, you know, the, you know, the happier I feel, the more I, you know, feel fulfilled um, and in providing you know, a meaning and purpose. Uh, so, and, and when we get to combine biofeedback with mindfulness and, and help people, you know, make the best use of this powerful tool, that's even better. And where can people find more information about you or your practice or where do you typically point people to if, if they want to learn more? Um, you can certainly uh, go to my website, and that's just my name, www.inahazan.com. Um, the uh, website for my clinical uh, practice is uh, www.bostonhealthpsychology.com. So you can check out either one of those. Um, there are I have meditation recordings uh, that people are free to uh, download and, uh, and use for themselves. Um, they're available on both uh, both websites, so I encourage people to check it out. And uh, uh, you can also uh, you know, check out uh, my book, Biofeedback and Mindfulness in Everyday Life, um, uh, as well as uh, my Psychology Today blog uh, under the same title to learn more about this. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And everyone, Dr. Ina Hazan, and we will link to those links that you just shared with us at the usual spot, which is EliteHRV.com slash podcast in the show notes. And thank you again so much. Thank you both, Jeff and Ina, for joining me today. And we'll hear lots more from Jeff and Ina if we, uh, I'm sure, <laughs> I just know from personal interest, I'm going to be... Uh, hoping that we communicate um, many more times in the future as well. So thank you both so much. Thank you.